Welcome to the X Oil Field Podcast with Reed Styles. I want to take some time to go over how this podcast started and go over my background so that you understand when I'm interviewing these people, kind of my experiences and where I'm coming from. I'm recording this at the end of April 2020, and this idea for the podcast started almost four years ago in 2016. At the time, I was going through the ConocoPhillips third or fourth round of layoffs in recent memory. Everything was very uncertain in the oil and gas space. There were lots of uncertainties around oil careers, how long your career was going to last, how many more jobs were going to be available. And here we are four years later with a similar kind of sinking feeling that the industry is going through some major changes, that many of the jobs and careers that people thought would be around for a long time might be a little uncertain. And so I kept looking around over the last four years thinking, man, someone's probably solved this problem. Someone probably has a resource out there to help people move to different industries, to give them ideas of different opportunities that exist, other jobs that are highly sought after, and also what kind of trainings they could go through to qualify for these jobs. Unfortunately, that just doesn't exist. And after some Google searching, looking around Reddit, I mean, there's just not a clear guide or a clear resource for these topics. So about two months ago, this whole podcast idea really kicked off when I talked with my friend who was formerly a landman supervisor at ConocoPhillips, and he transitioned his career over to full-stack web developer. I just picked his brain. I asked him a lot of questions. I mean, obviously, I want to interview him on the podcast, but my big takeaway was that there really wasn't a manual or a guide for all of this. He kind of stumbled upon the Code Bootcamp Workshop, and his path through coding was just kind of an accident. Now, he's gone on to do some great things, and he's really excited about being a full stack developer and working on cool projects. At the time in 2016, this was not an obvious path for someone with a land background to go into something so different and so unorthodox. I think what you'll see now, especially after we go through many of these interviews, is that that's probably a more likely path for many people in this next downturn than they realize. You know, adding that coding background, adding a more computer science oriented skill set, to their repertoire is probably on the horizon. And I think another thing we'll see is that people that stay in their petrotechnical roles are probably gonna add programming and more coding and more software to their pedigrees anyway. So even if you do stay in oil and gas, which is great, you know, it's it's a great industry. It's provided, you know, some amazing careers and, and some amazing projects for many people. You know, they may just be a lot more computer focused, data science focused and programming focused moving forward as our job relies so heavily on software now. So in high school, I didn't know what an engineer necessarily did. I definitely didn't know what a petroleum engineer did, but I was always heavily focused on robotics, science, math. I was always very strong in those core STEM classes. For two days down in Dallas, I did an aptitude test that really pointed me towards engineering, pointed me towards my personality fitting well at a small school environment and also introduced me for the first time to petroleum engineering. It was cited at the time, you know, around 2006, that petroleum engineers got paid really well and that the jobs were located in the Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas region, which is where I'm from originally. I went to school at the University of Tulsa, got my bachelor's in petroleum engineering and graduated in 2011. During my time at Tulsa, I was heavily involved with my fraternity. That was an exciting time in my life. And I was also very heavily involved in summer internships. So for four summers in college, 
I worked in small cities in the United States for oil and gas companies. So my freshman, my sophomore, my junior, and my senior summers, I actually had oil and gas internships. I was very fortunate to be the recipient of a special scholarship from ConocoPhillips, and that was kind of my in into ConocoPhillips for my junior summer internship. I always gravitated towards reservoir engineering, kind of having a more journalist perspective on things, and not being a super specialist. Like my personality type and my work ethic would not be conducive to being a PhD or a researcher. I definitely like this podcast. I need to cast a wide net in my career because I like having a lot of different skill sets and a lot of different optionalities as I continue my career. And so reservoir engineering seemed right for me. I started working for ConocoPhillips in their Permian Basin asset in 2012. At that time, my career aspirations were very simple. It was work for the biggest company possible at the time because I want to go do big international opportunities. I want to work internationally. I want to be an expat. I want to work on these big projects and get to travel around the world and have my company pay for it. Well, in 2012, of course, ConocoPhillips announced that they're doubling down on lower 48. You know, Permian became a high profile asset. And it became really exciting to work lower 48, but my international career aspirations definitely dried up. A key component to my career has been being able to see someone that's three or four years ahead of me in their career path and being able to either imitate them, learn from them, or follow them in some capacity. ConocoPhillips was no different. There was an engineer about three years ahead of me that began his MBA, and I quickly saw that he was rocket shipping up the ranks at ConocoPhillips, that was really exciting for me to see that if you went and got your MBA, then you could get optionality in your career and it might, may also add rocket fuel to your, your career. I took the GMAT in 2014, I scored well enough to get into Rice, and I literally didn't look at any other schools. At the time, oil and gas price was tanking in 2014-2015, and so it just kind of all seemed like it was the right time to take on a full-time MBA and work full-time at ConocoPhillips. So for the next two years, from 2015 to 2017, I did my MBA and worked full-time. It kind of coincided nicely with a decrease in activity at ConocoPhillips, and so I was able to balance both of those programs at the same time. You know, I kept my job and I did school. While at Rice, it became obvious that I wanted to work in a smaller company environment, maybe something more entrepreneurial, maybe something more tech-focused, maybe something more marketing focused. Those have always been the things that I gravitate towards, whether it's in video or advertising or social media or data analysis. I was always more interested in those sides of the business and less on the scientific STEM side of engineering, which is great because many jobs in reservoir engineering are more strategy focused, development focused, capital focused, and less on maybe the physics or the, the geology side of the business. It's nice to have those experiences and understand them, but I never wanted to be an expert in any, in any of that stuff. So in 2016, ConocoPhillips had, its, had a pretty massive round of layoffs. I remember that my team of about 10 people was gonna lose anywhere between two and three people, and for sure one engineer. The whole company-wide was given an opportunity to volunteer for the layoff, and I thought that this was my moment to kind of jump without the rope. So I hit the ejector button and was laid off in 2016. I then immediately went with my MBA program to China. I spent a whole month 
studying abroad in China, which was awesome. After returning from China, my startup career began. It's definitely a wild story how I found energy funders and became employed by them. I was talking with several people in my cohort and I mentioned to them I had an idea that there should be some kind of publicly funded oil company where you take a bunch of small investments, pull them all together, and then you know everyday people can invest directly into oil wells. You may only own 1% or some very small percent, but through the internet, you could easily vet the projects, you could get a whole bunch of experts together and try to make the best decisions possible. When I told my friend this, he said, it's funny because something like that already exists. It's called energy funders. So I went to energyfunders.com, I checked out their offering, and I decided to invest the minimum amount in the project that was possible at the time. It was a vertical drilling project in central Texas. I didn't really know anything about the basin. I did very little research. I just put the minimum in and I wanted to see how it went. Part of the investing process is receiving calls from the company. They're called KYC, Know Your Customer, where the company needs to kind of get to know you. They need to vet you and just make sure that, you know, overall your story checks out and that your data is accurate and that you're eligible for this investment and to just be there if you have any questions. When I invested in my first investment through Energy Funders, the CEO obviously called me and we talked a lot about my reservoir engineering background, a lot of the technical experience that I had. Obviously, he was intrigued by that because I could maybe help him if he ever had questions. He definitely was interested in my feedback on the project and just how the investment went overall. I continued to receive messaging from the operator who was sending it to Energy Funders and they were messaging it out. And I was just overall dissatisfied with the amount of data that I was receiving and the amount of detail that I wanted as an engineer that could assess this deal and assess the logs and assess the data. So I began giving free feedback to the energy funders CEO at the time. And I kept saying, you know, here are ways that you can improve it. Here's what I would do. And so the conversation over time turned from, I don't know how we can get you to onboard or join us, but we'd like to bring you on board and let's figure it out. Let's get you on the team. I was just kind of at the right place at the right time. At the time, Energy Funders only had one employee, which was the technical expert that was you know, coding and making the platform work and on security, creating the databases, all that stuff. So then I, as their lone Petro technical expert and continued to be for two years, You know, we did have mentors that were available for me to talk to that were both investors on the platform and then investors in the company. So I could refer to them or bounce ideas off of them. But for the most part, I was all alone in anything geoscience, reservoir engineering, operational engineering, completion engineering, drilling engineering. I was basically doing all of the technical work for the entire company. You know, many parts of the job were really interesting. You know, all the financial rules and regulations around our investment. I learned all about them. I definitely learned about the do's and don'ts of our investing, of our investment offering. I learned about PPMs, which are participation memorandums that, you know, explain the investment and explain what the investors are actually investing in. You know, I create a lot of exhibits and reports that were placed in that document. I even worked a lot in marketing. You know, we had to come up with ways to find new investors, how to portray our results for the projects. I worked on the website a lot. I worked on our social media campaigns. We made advertisements. So I was going out to the field with our video crew and we were shooting a bunch of video on the side of the rigs so that we could send it to the investors and updates. 
a big part of my job was data analysis. I was tracking how many investors we were bringing in every month, where the investors were coming from, and then also tracking the investments themselves. So we were watching how investors invest and trying to improve their experience and you know find out investor patterns and how we can make the investors happier it was just a really exciting and and you know i learned a lot really quickly if you have any experience as an entrepreneur or in a startup you do experience plateauing and so part of the challenge is to keep it interesting learn new things but at the same time really grind it out at a startup and really grind to try to get to the finish line and that's what can be hard is it does get a little monotonous, it does get a little boring, and if you're on a small team, there's very little overlap, so the buck often stops with you. You're the gatekeeper for progress. I wanted to touch on quickly some things comparing ConocoPhillips, you know, a company that has thousands of employees, to a startup that only has a few employees. And I think that this is interesting because the grass is always greener mentality has definitely been an important factor in a lot of my decisions. You know, you think Oh, continual growth and switching companies and trying new things is always better. And while in my mind, my personality fits that type of growth and that type of career strategy and all of that to this point, I think it's also good to reflect on everything and check out kind of the differences between a small startup, a small team, and a super established firm like ConocoPhillips. At ConocoPhillips, there were clear job growth opportunities. You could just stay an engineer for 30 years and become a super, super senior engineer and a super expert. And that was great. That was a very amazing career and it paid really well and it was very lucrative for the people. And people with that type of personality had a you know great job security. They had great work-life balance and they could just keep on advancing technically. And there was clear line of sight to get on more complex projects, work on bigger projects and work on different projects. There aren't typically that many growth opportunities, especially if you're a small team. I mean, if you're four or five people, you're all partners, you're all chasing towards the same goal, um, but that might mean you grinding in a job doing the exact same thing for five straight years with very little personal growth. Yeah, you'll get a lot of exposure to cool things, like another piece of the puzzle that I haven't even talked about would just be capitalizing your firm. You know, if you're working with VC investors or accredited investors or family offices or, you know, angel investors, friends and family, whoever, you know, that's a totally different skill set than what I learned at ConocoPhillips, where we were a publicly traded company and we were very well funded. We had a lot of cash flow, a lot of legacy assets. And so life was just a lot different. I didn't really worry about funding at ConocoPhillips. The cost of capital was very different than at a startup. At ConocoPhillips, there was a very, very defined onboarding process. There were layers of HR, there were resources available, they had online portals to check all of your healthcare, and they took care of all that. And it was just, there were tons of people to talk to. There was a lot of support. At my startup, there really wasn't any of that. For a while, we were all 1099 employees, and then we subsequently became W-2 full-time salary employees. There were no benefits because as a small company, you don't have to provide that. The pay was way less than my corporate job, but you know you do get a big amount of equity. That's the carrot dangling in front of you that forces you to work really hard, be innovative, and try to make the company work. And so there's no right or wrong way in all this, but I think that it's good to reflect on it and really look at the pros and cons of these two experiences. I wouldn't change anything about what I did or my experiences I had, but it is nice to just kind of reflect on them and say, you know what, maybe maybe the all equity, all in moonshot was not the best investment over time. You know, maybe the best investment is to stay at the more stable company 
that pays consistently and equity isn't as big of a factor and but you get more salary and more job opportunities and all that i mean there's no right or wrong answer in all this i just think it's good to reflect on it a big thing at ConocoPhillips was mentorship. My mentor was amazing. He was on my team. He was a very senior engineer. And I just can't say enough good things about the mentors I had at that company, whether they were my supervisors or other older engineers or just people in other roles. They were great. And I think that that's something that can't be stressed enough, especially in the early part of your career when you're learning everything. It's good to have those people around that you can mimic and learn from how they navigate their career and what they've done, what they've learned, the classes they've taken, the projects they've taken on, the job opportunities they've chased, and just learn from their experiences. In a startup, your mentors are often the people that fund your company or vendors, so people you work with, pay to do jobs for you, or Google, or books, or podcasts, or you know maybe people that you can link, like network through LinkedIn, or maybe startup groups, but there's not a clear mentorship program. And so I think that that's important if you're in a startup is to seek out a mentor, a business mentor, a professional mentor, and just stay connected with someone that is a little bit ahead of you in their career or is way ahead of you, you in their career and can help guide you. I know that some of my mentors at Energy Funders were our investors. So these were accredited people that had already been successful in their lives and they really liked talk to, talking with me about investments. I could go to them seeking advice about some of the deals we were trying to invest in. And it was just great to have someone to bounce ideas off of, but it's not as clear cut who your mentors are going to be. Something that can't you know, be stated enough is, and at this time, it's interesting to talk about is that ConocoPhillips was always looked at as a very stable company. You know, they had, they were well capitalized. They had access to debt. They didn't have too much debt. And it was just a very stable place to work, even in down cycles. They survived, you know, because they were a little bit smarter, they were a little bit bigger, and they had a bunch of legacy assets and, and a lot of experts behind the scenes that were making smart decisions. Now, I'm not making a comment on ConocoPhillips today, but I'm just saying that they're a stable business that's been around a very long time through the Conoco and Phillips 66 lineages. You know, at a startup, you have no stable business structure, right? Like, you could be wiped out by a lawsuit. You could run out of money. A competitor could come in and just completely crush you. There's no stability. And so you really have that like fight or flight feeling a lot of the time. Like I would describe a lot of uncertainty. You know, you worry about, you know, hey, in three months, are we going to be able to pay our bills? Oh my God, we got hit with this out of nowhere expense. How are we going to fund that? You know, you sit around waiting patiently and working hard on leads that don't go anywhere. Um, especially in the capital fundraising stage. Uh, raising capital can be very hard, and there's definitely an element of luck involved in just timing and who you meet and who you connect with. I think the big difference between like a massive established company and a startup would be the benefits. At ConocoPhillips, I had amazing health benefits. I had a pension. I had 401k match. I had stock bonuses. I had all these amazing benefits that just did not exist at a tiny startup of five people. Um, and that's not the startup's fault. That's just the nature of the business is that you're, you're grinding it out. You're trying to make the most out of your money and you're incentivized by equity, not by these kind of fancy um, benefits that you're given every month, the guarantees um, at the startup. Yeah, I would definitely say at ConocoPhillips are a big operator. It's, there are a lot of guarantees. It's really nice. You know, it's kind of cushy. And then at the startup, you don't have any of those guarantees. It's very uncertain. And 
you know, if you thrive in that environment and you're motivated by the equity and the possibility of the glass ceiling being extremely high, then maybe it's for you. It's just something to really consider. At ConocoPhillips, there were so many amazing international assignments when I started working there, like I said, but over time, those did kind of dry up. Just remember that at a multinational company, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to move around the country. That was something I sought out at ConocoPhillips and then really didn't have an opportunity to do that at my startup. Some things I think are also important is that a big company, you can have diversity of projects. You can move around, you can find new assets to work on, you can find new teams to work on, even like really big capital projects. At most startups, uh, in my opinion, you're not working on a diversity of ideas. Oftentimes you're just working on one little idea and grinding it until it works or continuously trying to improve that one little thing until it works. And you know, that's the niche that you're occupying. And that's the reason that you're a startup is you're going to do it better than probably the big boys, but there's just not a lot of diversity of ideas or diversity of products to work on. Um, I definitely experienced that at energy funders. We kind of, you know, grinded it out for, I think there was like a 12 month stretch where all I did was find new deals, put new deals on the platform, fund new deals, talk to investors about the deals and operate the deals and go out to the well site and record videos of the deals. I mean, it was very, very repetitive. It was fun and definitely a cool job and all that stuff. And working with the investors was always fun. You know, talking with investors about the deals, sending checks out to them, you know, delivering good and bad news. It was definitely all exciting and, you know, an interesting part of the job and definitely kept you on your toes. And, you know, there, you got to feel the emotions of the investment with the investors. Um, part of energy funders was taking a portion of the projects. So we were aligned with the investors. So when the, if we hit a dry hole and the investment did not work, then energy funders also suffered. So we all felt the emotions of the investment and it's a little addicting. There's definitely a, uh, an air of gambling to the whole process. You know, it's risk mitigation, it's risk management, it's diversity of investments. And, uh, yeah, it was really exciting when we hit. Uh, several of our big projects and had big big wells and got to pay out big checks on them. It was definitely fun. So one terrible thing about startups that I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about are employment contracts, stock and stock award offers. This is very legally driven. It's terrible. Um, I don't like this part of the job at all. It's contract negotiation. It's employment negotiation. There's a lot of legally driven documents that you need to read, you need to understand, you need to pay a lawyer to review, or you will get screwed over. A lot of really good people worked at the startup. It was super fun. Um, I, ha I had nothing but respect for my coworkers. Um, but then sometimes when you got down to the legal documents and the legal side and the cutthroat nature of how equity works and how dilution can happen and how raising more money works and oh my God, it can just be terrible. So. Just take note of that. It's it's a small thing that you're not probably gonna think about, but it is so terrible when it happens when you have to worry about getting screwed over legally and worrying about all the clauses that are in the contract and really worrying about the worst case scenarios of the commitment of your time and effort into the startup. So just remember that at somewhere like a very established company, you're probably not gonna worry about that. You're literally gonna sign the same contract that everyone else does it's very well defined what you're going to get paid and what your compensation is going to be. And a lot of those gray areas that can happen at startups are just eliminated. 
something that's interesting and you know having gone through an MBA program at Rice and and really feeling like the university itself is very prestigious and having like a certain pedigree I never really realized that ConocoPhillips was high pedigree job I mean it's a big company and you know putting that on a resume is powerful so it's just something to consider in the future that if you spend a lot of time and effort on a startup there's not a lot of pedigree there unless they make it big and so for you personally spend a lot of time thinking about and really figuring out how you're going to sell that experience and that name and that um, and everything around it it's not as simple as you know some powerful brand names like especially my first thought was you know investment banks and definitely interesting to see like going to either a prestigious school or, or a job or a prestigious company there's that power that can kind of help you down the lines i think that was something i never really considered before and and something that you know who you're aligned with and who you worked for in the past can be important in the future yeah so one thing that i took for granted a little bit at conoco phillips at a big company the layers of management and supervisors goal setting and micromanaging that goes on i have i was so lucky that in my teams my supervisors were not massive micromanagers but they did want to know what you were doing they did try to make sure that you were successful and i'd say for the most part you know i don't know about the cost benefit analysis of the supervisors but from an employment perspective and as a per member of their team i mean it was positive it was nice to have someone that would go to bat for you um, it kind of shields you from office politics and also you know you could go to if you had any issues or if you you know wanted to work on your goals or work on a new project you always had someone to go to at a startup we just really didn't have that at a tiny company especially if you're all partners of the firm and you're all equity holders and you're all in on this i mean there's really no boss right i mean yeah your ceo may be the boss but um, I'd say really the main boss is just your your capital providers, you know, whoever invests in your company, um, the board of directors. And I mean, at the end of the day, you're just trying to make the equity worth as much money as possible. So it's just a little different, um, something I didn't necessarily think about when I got into the startup. You know, I thought that being my own boss and being ultra self-motivated and being a self-starter would be super great. And in some respects, it's awesome. You have unlimited freedom. No one's telling you what to do, really. Um, you can be as innovative as you want, make as big a difference as you want. Uh, but also at the same time, it is kind of, it can be daunting when you start something and you're like, wow, this is a blank slate. I can do anything. And you just have that paralysis by analysis type problem where you're just, there are too many options. There are too many things you could be working on and you can't stay focused. So I think it's important that when you're in the startup to really kind of take some of those big company practices of setting goals, setting timelines, and really creating hard targets for you to hit. You know, one thing I did is I would, there was a task where every month I would do something very specific, which was quite a bit of work. And so I would just try to set a reminder on my phone where every month I would just do that work on the same time every month. And it helped me get in a repetitive nature of this small task that took a lot of time and it was important but I could easily have just blown it off so definitely get into those repetitious goal setting you know kind of setting your own schedule and just being very disciplined with it is important and I felt like at ConocoPhillips it was a little different everything was more rigid there were clear you know quarterly updates that were needed there were clear annual reviews that we did and everything was just a lot more systematic 
So as far as learning goes, I think there's a huge opportunity to learn at startups. You can do a bunch of different jobs. You can really expand your horizons. You know, the question is always, do you want to be, if you're thinking like pools of water, do you want to be a shallow pool that's super big and expansive and has no depth? Or do you want to be a tiny pool that's 300 feet deep? I don't know what the right answer is, but at a startup, it's often easy to become the person that has many skills and wears many hats and learns a lot of different things and has a lot of different jobs and is very flexible. So just remember that if you're a super generalist, it can sometimes be hard to market yourself after the job. In my case, I have gone back to a more specialized role, which is totally fine. And then more of my generalist mentality is something like this podcast where on the side I can have a creative outlet and I can have a little side project that allows me to wear more hats. Because of the startup, I was doing technical work, marketing work, advertising work, all types of different stuff, legal work. And now I'm focused very solely on the technical work and a little bit of the soft skills and then the podcast can be my creative outlet. So I just wanna wrap up this talk with one last thing I learned from the startup that I think is so important and I don't hear enough people talk about it. It's founding members of the firm. Your founders can make or break the entire company. And at Energy Funders, they had some amazing people as founders, um, but they did not have a lot of skill diversity. The company is extremely regulatorily driven and it's very legally driven and contractually driven. And that's all great. And many of the founders had that background. Um, it would have been probably smarter in hindsight to have one person that's legal, one person that's technical in oil and gas, and one person that's technical in web development. I think that that was a big hurdle for the company. And obviously, Energy Funders is still around. There's a website. There's you know you can invest online. You can sign up for free and all that stuff. But I just think that my lesson learned from that whole experience is that you probably shouldn't have too many founders with the same skill set because you're going to be a lot of cheap labor for the firm. And uh, in that case, for energy funders, they had a lot of legal help, but they still had to find someone like me to do any of the technical work. And accordingly, in the earlier years before I got there, there were some gaps in the technical workflow and the projects they were dealing with and the people they were dealing with. And so I just think that that's a super big learning lesson where the founders can really make huge impacts or be huge hurdles for the company to grow. I would just be very cautious of any overlap. So if you go into a, like, let me give you a different example. Let's say you go to a, a tech startup and it's three geologists that are all the founders. That's great. You know, you're going to be very geologically strong, but at the end of the day, what are you going to do when there's a legal question or an accounting question or a you know, there's a big technical problem with engineering, like drilling or completions or facilities. It'd just be smarter if you had one geo, one engineer, one accountant, one financial manager or something like that. So just really consider the founder's skill diversification. And I just want to wrap all this up and say that my experience at the startup was so great. I learned so many things. Obviously, doing something like this podcast became so much easier now that I had the skills around marketing and CRMs and recording and editing and telling a story and talking to investors and really thinking about the big picture strategy of my business. But I just think it's really important that as you're thinking about jobs and what you might want to do next, that the startup life not be so glamorized. 
I think the startups are a super fun experience. Being an entrepreneur is cool and being your own boss is even cooler. But I don't think that the way that people describe corporate life as being so terrible and so horrible is right either. I think that there are just benefits to both. I think there are cons to both. And I think you can do a mix of both if you want to. Clearly, that's what I've proven is that you don't have to just work at tech startups your whole life. I think that that was a fun experience and I am going to do my own thing with this podcast, but then also having another job too, that's a little bit more stable and a little bit more defined is great too. Hopefully that's the takeaway you got from all this. Thank you so much for listening to the Exit Wellfield resource with Reed Styles. I know that there's a lot of information in this podcast. There are a lot of interviews coming your way with people that have transitioned out of traditional oil and gas roles and into something else. And I'm so excited to share them with you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast in Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed the podcast, consider rating it five stars and writing a review. That would be a free way to really help the show. If you or someone else you know has a story that should be shared on the podcast, I'd love to hear about it. Reach out to me, read R-E-E-D at xoilfield.com. Thank you. We'll talk next time.